am I on? Testing, testing, come on, okay, good. All right, well, welcome. It's good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, I'll invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, and uh, if you're using, if, if, if you don't have your Bible this morning, I encourage you to grab one, and you should find one in, in the chair in front of you, and you'll find the passage on uh, page 959 and uh, 960. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? And uh, if you um, are here for the first time this morning, maybe been invited by a friend, and we want to welcome you and glad you're here. Hope you'll stay for this series over the next three weeks as we walk through uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, uh, just to give you a larger context of what we've been doing as a church, uh, we have been in the Gospel of Mark and have been in the Gospel of Mark uh, for some time, and we'll be picking up that series after we uh, complete our study in 1 Corinthians 13 over these uh, next three weeks. Uh, but I'm going to be in reading for us in 1 th- uh, Corinthians 13. Uh, I'm going to be in reading for us in uh, verse 1. I'll read through the whole chapter, and then this morning we're just going to focus on uh, the first three verses, okay? Uh, so hear God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, once again, we come to this time and we thank you and praise you for your word. And we pray that you would be with us now by your spirit. We acknowledge before you our absolute dependence upon you to understand your word and then for it to change us and transform us. And so, Lord, we commit this time in your hands humbly, but also with great expectancy, knowing that you delight to answer prayer. And so we come before you asking you would do great things in our lives during this time. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, the title of our series is, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? And if you are a child from the 80s, which I am, then you know I ripped the title off of Tina Turner, okay? So uh, this actually was a very important song in the career of Tina Turner. Uh, she was uh, 45 years old 
when in 1984, What's Love Got to Do With It became number one on the singles chart, hit number one on the U.S. singles chart. Um, Now, I've probably heard that song hundreds of times in my life, but I never really knew what it was about. Uh, So this last week, I decided to look the lyrics up and read them. And um, many of you know the chorus. You don't have to worry. I'm not going to sing it for you, okay? Uh, But the chorus goes, oh, what's love got to do with it, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Now, after hours of analyzing that um, lyrical masterpiece, I figured out that the song is about a woman who wants to enjoy a relationship and is enjoying at the time the thrill of a new relationship, but is fearful of being hurt, fearful of being vulnerable. And so she wants to pursue or continue that relationship without, without the reality of love. She wants a relationship without love because love is dangerous. Well, in our text this morning, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And Paul's concern with the church in Corinth was that they wanted to do church. They wanted to do Christianity. They wanted to do the gospel without love. And what Paul is communicating, and we'll see this in these first three verses this morning, is you've got to have love. You can't do church, you can't do the Christian faith, you can't do the gospel without love. Let me give you a little bit of context of what was happening here as Paul wrote this church. Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was also one of the most pagan and morally depraved cities in the Roman Empire. But God had been exceedingly gracious so that when Paul came to Corinth and he preached the gospel there, there were number of people who were converted, who trusted in Christ for the first time, and a church was birthed. A church was birthed in this wealthy, diverse, pagan, and immoral city. And now this young church is struggling to understand what it means to live out the Christian faith, in particular given their surroundings. One of the things we learn about this young church as we read the letter of Corinthians is that they were not lacking in gifting or ability. In fact, this was a church that was filled with many able and gifted people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 7, Paul writes to the church and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And so this was a church, this young Christian church, this was a church that was very gifted, very able, filled with gifted people. But although they were rich in gifting and in knowledge and in ability, they were desperate in their need for love. As you read this letter to the church in Corinth, you find that they were divided over any number of things. They were divided among themselves over personalities and theology and practice and worship and spiritual gifts and which social class people fell in and matters of Christian liberty. Some people were saying, I follow Paul, and they were identifying themselves with the Apostle Paul. Others were saying, no, I follow Apollos, and they were identifying themselves with this other great Christian leader. And so they were divided in that way. 
In fact, even as they came to the Lord's table, as they took the bread and the cup to remember the Lord's death, they were treating it like an all-you-can-eat buffet. They were fighting each other to get to the Lord's table and get as much as they could, and they were having dissension and division over this. Some were saying that they were more holy because they didn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, which they viewed as a taboo. And others were saying, well, those idols aren't gods anyways, and we're free in Christ to eat that meat, and so I don't care if you're offended by that or not, and I don't care if it affects your conscience or not. I'm not giving in to the legalist. And so they were divided over this issue as well. And then there were those as well who thought that their spiritual gifts and their ministry was superior to everyone else's. That's actually what's happening here in these chapters. Uh, This section, chapter 13, really falls into a larger section of chapter 12 through 14, where Paul is discussing the issue of spiritual gifts and division in the body related to the gifts that the people had in the church. And in the midst of that, he addresses this issue of love. It's really interesting. The structure of chapters 12 to 14 is... If, if, um, if you want to use the literary pattern, it's A-B-A. So the idea is A, he talks about spiritual gifts and division. B, he has the chapter of love. A, he returns to spiritual gifts and the division. The idea is it's like a sandwich. The conflict is handled on the outside, but right in the middle, the meat of the matter, you might say, the meat of the sandwich is love. How would they resolve these matters? Love is at the heart of it. Not only is this the key to them resolving the conflict as it relates to spiritual gifts and division within their body, but this really is at the heart of dealing with all conflict, this matter of love that Paul will be talking about. Now let me just say up front as we begin to get into this chapter that chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. There's a few others like the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23. But this is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, and mainly because it is often read at weddings, right? And so people read this passage or they hear this passage and, and maybe they get kind of, feel, you know, feel good. Oh, this is the love chapter, you know. And, and that's, that's, in one sense, that's good because there are things here that are encouraging and comforting and renewing. And we will see that as we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But understand that this chapter, in its context, actually, is a pretty severe rebuke to the Corinthian church. And as we get into the chapter, I think you'll see that. Because this is the main point that we'll see this morning from these first three verses. What Paul is intending to communicate in these first three verses is that you can possess great spiritual gifts and you can accomplish great spiritual feats and you can have great spiritual experiences and still not be a Christian. Now how can Paul make that claim? There are two reasons that he gives, and we're going to look at each. The first is because love is of greater worth than gifts. And the second reason is because love is the essential mark of a Christian. Okay, so those are the two reasons why Paul can make this claim. That we could possess great spiritual gifts, have great spiritual experiences, accomplish great spiritual feats, and still not be a Christian. Those are the two reasons. Let's look at the first one. Love is of greater worth than gifts. Look there in verse 1 again. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So, so love is of, you see it here in the text, love is of greater worth than gifts. This actually is a theme that runs through this entire section. So if you go back, just one verse previous, the last verse of chapter 12, Paul introduces this theme and he says in chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes into the chapter of love, right? What is the more excellent way than gifts? The more excellent way is love. And so Paul says, desire the gifts that the Spirit will give you to do ministry for the sake of Christ. Even desire the greater gifts. But there is something even more valuable than the gifts. There's something more valuable than even the greater gifts. Namely, love. Now, I want you to see this very specifically here in these three verses. So some commentators have pointed out that as Paul makes this argument in the first three verses of uh, chapter 13 that each of his arguments follows a three-step pattern, okay? A three-step pattern. Whereas in each occasion, what happens is that Paul makes a reference to a remarkable gift first. That's first step. Then second step, an extraordinary gift. And then third step, an even greater reality, namely love. I want us to see that in the passage, okay? So look in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. First step, I speak in the tongues of men. Now, this is a gift that we're not going to go, we don't have time this morning to go into what all Paul means by this, but this is a gift that Paul speaks of in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. He actually spends some time dealing with this, that this is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to some in his church. It is the gift to speak in tongues. And Paul acknowledges, in fact, that he has that gift, that he possesses it. So that's the first step. I speak in the tongues of men. Second step, now he speaks of an extraordinary gift, right? Even if I speak in the tongues of angels. That would be the deluxe version of speaking in tongues, right? And and so perhaps the angels have a language all their own. We don't know. But Paul is saying here, but even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, and now third step, right? So... Gift, speaking in tongues, extraordinary gift, second step, the tongues of angels, third step, but even if I spoke in the tongues of angels and didn't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a claiming symbol. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, that's first step, right? And Paul did have prophetic powers. He was a prophet, he was an apostle. He tells us that in other places, and we see it as he he writes much of Scripture for us. Second step, I have prophetic powers. Second step, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, that's extraordinary, right? Uh, Paul has told us, in fact, that God has revealed to him certain mysteries, the mystery of the gospel, which had been hidden in times past, but has been made known in Christ, and he had been given this stewardship to we proclaim this gospel and record it for us in Scripture. In chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, um, he says that he is a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. 
And so he had been given prophetic powers, mysteries of God and the gospel had been revealed to him, but it is a stretch to say that he would understand all mysteries and all knowledge. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. In fact, later on in this chapter, he says in chapter uh, 13, verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Our knowledge is, is partial. Our prophecy of the things of the mysteries and knowledge of God are partial because we don't know all things. Our knowledge is not exhaustive. Our knowledge is limited. So first step, I have prophetic powers. Second step, I would, extraordinary gift, I would possess all knowledge and, 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 and know all mysteries. This is imaginary, right? Even if that were possible, third step, even if that is true, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Again in verse 2, he says, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Now here I believe the first step is assumed, that is if I have faith. The second step, if I have all faith, not just faith, not partial faith, not strong faith, but all faith. So that I'm always believing and always trusting God to do great things for kingdom advancement and gospel proclamation and for, for God to move in miraculous ways. And I had all faith so as to remove mountains. Third step, I had all faith, even to remove mountains, but had not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, and you may discern the pattern at this point. If I give away all I have, first step, that's the gift of giving and generosity, right? This is pretty remarkable that one would give away everything, or, or, or someone would give away everything they have to the poor. Second step, even greater. If one gave away all they possessed, what more could they give? They could give their life. And Paul says, even if I delivered my body up to be burned. In other words, if I gave all that I had away, I could still give away my body in martyrdom. But third step, even if I gave my body away in martyrdom but had not love, I gain nothing. Now do you see that on each occasion... The Apostle Paul here esteems love as of greater worth and greater value than spiritual gifts, spiritual experiences, even miraculous gifts, and extraordinary spiritual experiences. So tongues and prophecy and knowledge and philanthropy And martyrdom are not the greatest deeds that a Christian can attain. Rather, love is. And Paul obviously would broaden this to all gifts, right? So this includes gifts of hospitality or giving or administration or teaching or preaching or music. Whatever you can imagine. Love, the Apostle Paul says, is greater. Now, why is love greater? One of the reasons, and actually Jonathan Edwards, who is a great Christian uh, pastor and theologian, he wrote, uh, actually it was a couple centuries ago, he wrote um, a book called Charity and Its Fruits. And it's an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he deals with these uh, verses at length. And he makes this point that one of the reasons why love is greater than gifts is because one can possess remarkable and extraordinary gifting and not be changed on the inside. 
And that it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that one can truly be changed on the inside and love flows from a heart that has been changed. And so in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, he compares the giftings that one might possess as uh, he compares it to like a jewel on um, a woman or a man's hand or neck. And, and he makes the point that the jewel has the ability to change outward appearance or to beautify one outwardly, but it has no power to change inwardly. This is a quote. Quote, they are like, this is gifts, they are like a beautiful garment which does not alter the nature of the man that wears it. They are like precious jewels with which the body may be adorned. But true grace is that whereby the very soul itself becomes, as it were, a precious jewel. And my friends, that, the Apostle Paul would say, can only happen by the power of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In which one's heart is actually changed by the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. So love is of greater value than gifts. Secondly, and this is the second reason that Paul says that we can possess all these great gifts and still not be a Christian, is because love is the essential mark of a Christian. Love is the essential evidence that one is a Christian. We could say it that way. Now, look there again in the verses, in verses 1 to 3. I'll I'll read them for us again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, it's obvious here that the Apostle Paul is intending to say this in such a way that it would shock the Corinthians so that they would understand something of the importance of what he is trying to communicate. Now, notice this in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I produce nothing. You can't play... I don't know much about music, but I know this. You you can't play a song with just a gong or a cymbal. By itself, it doesn't produce anything of worth or value. And so what Paul... And you can imagine these folks have the ability to speak in tongues. And you can imagine them thinking, this is beautiful, right? Paul says, without love, gong, clanging cymbal. Now, conversely, we could say as well, and we're going we're gonna to go here in a few minutes, that a person or a church that is marked by love will sing a song, a beautiful gospel song that will ring in their community and among the nations. So the converse is true as well. Verse 2, And if I had prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, here it is, I am nothing. In other words, I can be prophetic, I can be knowledgeable, I can be wise and insightful when it comes to Scripture and spiritual matters. I can be theologically conversant, so I've read all John Piper's books and I can reference them. Some of y'all know who he is, 
He's a Christian theologian. I can do all of that, but if I, have not, if I do not have love, I am nothing. Now notice, Paul goes here from, not only do I produce nothing, but I am spiritually nothing. Spiritually speaking, I am nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this is striking. I could give all my possessions, even my life in martyrdom, but without love I gain nothing. Now, this is, in fact, the greatest sacrifice that was Jesus ever made, right? As we think about one giving their lives away, this is the greatest sacrifice that Jesus ever gave. He gave His own life. But why was His sacrifice acceptable to the Father? It wasn't just because He gave His life. It wasn't just because He grit His teeth and gave His life in obedience. But He gave His life in love. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, In the life I live now, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so out of love, perfect love for His Father, and out of love for His people, Christ took the penalty and the punishment for our sin in our place at the cross so that we might have a relationship with God. Because it was offered in love, it was a perfect sacrifice to the Father. Now, putting, putting these three verses together that we've just looked at, notice that the fruit of one who boasts of spiritual gifts, miraculous deeds, religious experiences, but does not do these things in love, Paul says, that person, spiritually speaking, produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. Produces nothing, is nothing, gains nothing. And the question, I think, naturally comes to our mind. Is it really possible for one to possess these gifts and to have these types of experiences mentioned here and spiritually amount to nothing? In other words, to be separated from God, to not be a Christian, to not know God's saving grace, to not be a child of God. Is that possible? And there is repeated evidence in the scriptures that it is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is striking. That, that one would... One would possess certain spiritual ability and have certain spiritual experiences in which they were able to do even miraculous things. And yet, the, the central motivation of their own hearts, whether it be for money, whether it be for praise for other people, whether it be for self-justification, whatever, that it would cause them to have spiritual experiences on the one hand, but never experience saving grace on the other hand. And Jesus says, his response will be, depart from me. Balaam is a figure in the Old Testament who is repeatedly referred to as a wicked man, but for a time, God enabled him to accurately prophesy about future events. Or King Saul, who was an Old Testament king, 
There were times when the Spirit came upon Saul and he was among prophets and he prophesied even with the prophets of his day, but his experience of the Spirit was not a saving one. Or Judas. We've been in the Gospel of Mark, right? Actually, if you go to Matthew's Gospel, he tells the account of when Jesus sends out the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it reads, And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in the very next verse, Matthew records for us who those disciples were, who those apostles were. And the twelve are listed, and the very one, last one lifts, listed is Judas Iscariot, who is identified there as the one who betrayed him. And so Judas was given ability, along with the other disciples and the apostles, to cast out unclean spirits, to heal diseases. And yet Jesus, there would come a time when he would say of Judas, that it would have been better had he never been born, given his betrayal. And so Paul says that one can possess great spiritual gifts and accomplish great spiritual feats and spiritually be nothing. Spiritually never be a Christian. Now how is this? Well, because, my friends, as the Scriptures teach us here and in many other places, the essential mark, the essential evidence of a Christian is love. I mean, do you see now, even as, as Paul has been, has been laying this out for us here in these verses, do you see that this is the greatest gift that God could ever give you? To change your heart by the love of Christ and to infuse His love into your own heart. Again, Jonathan Edwards writes in Charity and Its Fruits, quote, it, w- it, w- or it has been uh, well said or well considered Um, And it will appear beyond all doubt that the saving grace of God in the heart, working a holy and divine temper in the soul, is the greatest blessing that ever men receive in this world, greater than any natural gifts, greater than the greatest natural abilities, greater than any acquired endowments of mind, greater than the most universal learning, greater than any outward wealth, wealth and honor, greater than to be a king or an emperor, greater than to, uh, than to be taken from the sheep as David was and made king over all Israel, and all the riches and honor and magnificence of Solomon and all his glory are not to be compared with it. End of quote. This is what Paul is trying to say to us. The greatest gift that God could ever give to you is to change your heart by his gospel and to give you his love. Now, with that in mind, I want to close by making four applications, okay? And I'm going to hit these very quickly. But four groups of people want to apply this passage to. The first group, and I think this is the main group that actually is being addressed here in 1 Corinthians 13, is those who are clearly gifted. Those who are clearly gifted. God has given you certain gifts, certain abilities, And in particular, let's think about in Christian ministry. Maybe you're involved in ministry. You've had ministry experiences in the past. And we are warned here that gifts are not a gauge of the heart. 
Gifts are not the gauge of the heart. It is so tempting if you have been gifted, if you have been given certain abilities, if you are involved in Christian ministry in any way or in your church to think, oh, I'm serving God and He's blessing it, so He must be pleased with me. And that's not necessarily true. The Bible teaches us and experience affirms that we can act out of our gifting long past when our hearts have become hard and cold by sin and by self-righteousness. And so watch this in your own life. If God has gifted you, if He's given you some type of ministry, watch this in your own life. Watch if you're finding your identity in giftedness or in knowledge or whatever it might be. Watch when your giftedness or your knowledge is not recognized by someone else, how easily you get offended or hurt. If you're finding your identity in that, that's where you'll go. And so Paul here is giving a warning to a church that is very capable, very knowledgeable, very gifted. Your giftedness is not a gauge of where your heart is before God. The second group of people I want to speak to are those who we might say are less gifted. You might be here this morning, you say, well, my gifts aren't as pronounced. I'll never be asked to lead. I'll never be asked to speak or to lead music on a Sunday morning or maybe I don't, I don't have, I don't sense anyways, I don't, I don't have the feeling that I'm as gifted as some around me. Now listen, there is, the, you, are, you are in danger of committing the same error that Paul is speaking of here. Do you see what Paul is saying? Don't value gifts over love. Don't value gifts over love. You might say to yourself, well, I don't feel especially gifted and therefore I can't be used of God. Listen, what Paul is saying is love is better. You don't have to be a great communicator. You don't have to have an angelic voice, as Paul says here. But by love, you can change. You can change the world. By loving your spouse well with sacrificial love, as we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. By loving your children and pouring your lives into them. By loving the people in your church and serving them. By reaching out to your community to the least of these with gospel love and Christian love. You can literally change the world. Paul says love is better. And through love, Jesus says this, right? They will know you are my disciples. How? Because you're so gifted. No. By your love for one another. The third group that I want to apply this passage to is the church, to us, to Berea. And one of the things that we have to recognize as a church is that we, when we read this passage and we think about our own ministry here at Berea, is that we can have uh, dynamic preaching, we can bring in uh, great preachers, we can have gifted musicians, we can have visionary leaders and gifted administrators. We can have talented event planners and winsome and inviting people skills. We can have well-run ministries, but there's something even greater. 
there's something Paul says that is even more of a clear and compelling testimony of the gospel and a compelling testimony of God's presence and work among us, a more compelling call to our community. And that is love. Sacrificial love, Christian love, gospel love. And oh, my friends, as Berea, and I praise God for the evidences of his love among us. And there are many. But as a church, may we pray and long and desire and ask God to fill us with his love. And may it be evident in every experience that we have in lives in our homes and with our spouses and our children, the way we relate to one another and the way we serve our community, the way we give our lives away for the nations. The fourth group I want to apply this passage to is those of you who are troubled. Those of you who are troubled. And what I mean by this is I imagine this morning that for some of you this passage troubles you. Probably all of us. But, but some of us even at a deeper level. And maybe you're wrestling this morning with the question, am I a Christian? I mean, if this is true, am I really a Christian? And let me just say this, that you don't get love and you don't get Christian love by mere willpower. Okay? So the point of this passage is not, okay, I'm not loving, I need to be loving, and so I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to love people. All right? And then I'm going to prove I'm a Christian. Okay? That's not the point of the passage. Love is a gift. And the only way you get this love, this Christian love, is by recognizing that you can't love like this. And you go to Christ and you see the way that He has loved you in the gospel. And you believe and you trust in the love that Jesus displayed for you at the cross when He paid the penalty for your sin. And if you go to that cross and if you trust in that Christ and you know the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the gospel is, you get a new heart. God gives you a new heart and you don't love perfectly. None of us do. And you will fail in many ways, but by God's grace, you are empowered to love in a different way. And gradually, by God's grace and progressively, by His grace, you love more and more and more as you understand and embrace that gospel more deeply. It transforms you. It changes you. Through the gospel, God gives you a new heart to love Him and to love others. Let's pray that that would be true for every one of us. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we confess that in some ways this passage scares us to death. Who loves like this? And yet, Father, for several reasons, we give you glory and praise that this passage is in Scripture. One, because it reveals the type of God you are, that you are a God of love. Uncompromising, eternal love. And when this world is over, you will always and forever be love. So we praise you. And then, Father, we thank you that this passage is in Scripture because the love that is spoken of here 
is a love that you have demonstrated to us in Christ. And you promise to give to us as a gift if we will trust you. Oh God, thank you. Father, I pray that for each one of us here this morning, that we would run to you, the God of love. That we would trust in Christ and that by your grace you would change us. You would make us a loving people and I pray for us as a church, as Berea. May we be known, may we be known by our love. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.